Well, think, think with me on, on this question as, as we begin, as we look at our text this morning. What, what is salvation? What is salvation? So when you think of salvation in Christ, how do you think of it? Do you, do you think of it as a, as a one-time event, something that has happened in the past to you or to someone? Do you think of it maybe as a future reality, something that will happen in the future? Or do you think about it as, as kind of an ongoing process? Have you been saved? Are you being saved? Or, or will you be saved? Now, this is kind of a trick question. You know your Bible really well because the Bible talks about salvation in all three of these ways. But the distinction is really important. So, for example, we see salvation is a past event, something that that happens to someone in a text like Ephesians 2.8. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. So there's your past tense. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So, so we see it as a past event. We also see this language of an ongoing process in a text like 1 Corinthians 15.2. Paul says, and, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here's this idea. It's a, it's a present reality. You're, you're being saved. We're being saved. And then we see plenty of texts where salvation is a, is a future event that we're looking forward to, that we're hoping in. This might even be the majority of texts that talk about salvation. Romans 5.9 is a great example. What it says, Since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, looking again to the future. So the scriptures use language, words relating to salvation in, in these different ways. Past tense, present tense, future tense. So really the correct answer, is this a past, present, or future, is yes. It's all of these. Now, this is relevant to our text this morning. We find the word salvation there in verse 12. Because I think it's fair to say, and in my experience, that a lot of times, kind of our default, and I don't know why this is, there's probably some historical reasons for it, our default is the past tense. We ask people questions. Have you been saved? Are you saved? Uh, when was the last time you asked someone, are you being saved? It's not really the way we think about it, unfortunately. When was the last time you asked someone, will you be saved in the future? And so, so for some reason, we have this default towards the past. And this is important because in the text this morning, Paul is talking about salvation much more as a present process. And so if we kind of read into it this past idea, we're going to get all mixed up in our text this morning. We're going to come out with ideas that salvation is by works and we have to earn it, which would be a horrible error. Paul is talking about salvation in this text as the Christian life. You want your big word for it, sanctification. And so the question we're, we're answering this morning is, is not, how do I get saved? Although, of course, we'll touch on that. But rather, what should a Christian's life look like once they are saved? What does it look like now in this present time? See, the Philippian church was surrounded by a society that was hostile towards them. Paul writes this letter to them in large part, large part to encourage them to keep going. 
He knows that they're experiencing persecution, that they're experiencing uh, hard times. And so this letter of the Philippians is largely that. If you could sum it up in, in a really short phrase, is keep going, remain faithful, keep pursuing Christ. This is why Paul, really the, the summary in the text of the entire letter can be found in chapter 1, verse 27, if you want to look at it. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life, let, let the way you live be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Everything else in Philippians really, after that phrase, is a further explanation of what it means to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Josh showed us a few weeks ago that in chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, one thing Paul says is it takes a community marked by unity and humility. Paul then in chapter 2, verse 6 through 11, grounds that in the mindset of Christ, the humility of Christ. This is why he was willing to humiliate himself on our behalf. And in our text this morning, Paul continues. He continues his encouragement to the Philippian church by exhorting them to get to work. In other words, to, to work out their salvation. What we see is that this is the logical and necessary response to the exaltation of Christ that we saw in the, earlier in chapter 2 that Josh preached a few weeks ago. In light of Christ's great sacrifice, we respond by working out our salvation. We obey God because Christ our Savior obeyed God, and it is Him we follow. We work because Christ worked. And so in this text, we're going to see three aspects of what that means. We're going to kind of frame it around this. Three aspects of work. What does it mean to work out our salvation? The first thing that we're going to see is this. The prelude to work is love. The prelude to work is love. So look at verse 12. Look how Paul starts this section. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. So this is the prelude. Paul hasn't gotten to the command yet. The command will come later in verse 12. He's, he's just setting up the command here. Before he even gets there, he begins with encouragement, with love. He's affirming his love for them. He's affirming their obedience. And what does this tell us? It tells us the tone of what Paul's talk, how Paul's talking to them. This is a tone of encouragement, one of love. It's not a rebuke. It's not a correction. It's an encouragement. It's a loving word from their dear friend and pastor. So, so whatever Paul is about to command them, he says he already knows that they're going to obey him because he knows the Philippian church. He knows them well. He knows that they are humble and willing to listen his instructions. He knows that these are true believers who have turned from their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Grace and love come before the command. And this, this isn't unusual in Scripture. This is actually, this is the biblical order of things. It's how, it's how Paul structures all of his letters. It's always grace and love before the rules. This is why our text this morning begins with that, that wonderful word, therefore. Don't ever ignore that word in the scripture. 
Paul is tying together these two sections with this word, therefore, and by it, he's alerting us to the fact that what's going to follow, the command he's about to give, the imperative he's about to give is grounded in what came before. It is a response to what came before. In other words, the obedience that Paul is about to call the Philippians and us to is grounded and rooted in the work and the obedience of Christ himself. We are only able to obey God because God has first loved us and saved us through the work of Christ. We've got to be really careful not to mess up this order. God acts, we respond. God acts, then we respond. God saves us, and then we respond. God loves us, God pours his grace out upon us, and then we respond in obedience. God's love, God's grace, is not a response to our obedience, but rather our obedience is a response to his grace and love. In other words, because Christ was obedient unto death, like Paul had said in chapter 2, verse 8, because of that, because he saved us, now we are called to be obedient to him. So by his obedient life, Christ saved us, now he calls us into obedience to himself. That's the, the entire, that's the pattern in, in the entire Bible, everything. And, and if there's one place, you might be tempted to think, well, no, 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 well, what about the Old Testament? People had to obey love, right, to obey all those rules and the law, obey the Ten Commandments, and then God would love them? But that's not the pattern. Even in the Old Testament, the, the pattern was the same. God saves, then calls us to obedience out of his grace and love. God delivers, then he gives his law out of his grace to his people. Think about the way that the Ten Commandments begin. You might want to start with, you shall have no other gods before me, but that's not how they begin. Exodus 20, chapter 2, this is how it begins. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I am the God who has saved you. I have saved you. And so now, here are the commands. Before God gave the Israelites any commandments, before he asked anything of them, he saved them. He delivered them from slavery. Grace and love always precede commands. The gospel comes of faith in Christ, and then, now, this is important because it helps us to hear God's commands with the right tone. See, what God commands here, this text, is, is not a way to earn yourself into his love. But it's the right response to his love that has already been given to us in Christ Jesus. It's the prelude. The prelude to our obedience, to our work, is God's love for us. So that's how Paul sets up the command here. But what is the command? What does he tell the Philippians to do? To work out. Second thing we see in our text this morning is this, the command to work, the command to work. Paul encourages the Philippians to, to continuously work out the knowledge of Christ into every area of their life. Look at the second half of verse 12. This is the central, the, the central part of our text this morning. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, a couple things to notice about this text. The, the tense of the Greek verb that's translated work out is in a form that designates it's a, it's a continuous action. It's an ongoing process. This isn't something you do once. This isn't something you do in the future. This is something that you do every moment of every day. It's a continuous process. Working out your own salvation is a lifelong process. It will never be finished until you die. This process won't be completed until the day of Christ. This call to work out your own salvation is a call to grow in your Christian faith and life. It is a call to pursue spiritual growth. It is a command to seek to obey God more and more and more and more. Now that should be encouraging You see, Christ calls us to pursue him in our lives. Christ calls us to work out our own salvation. That means that he knows that we are a work in progress. All of us. That should relieve some of this burden that we feel when we hear commands like this. God knows that we're not there yet. That's why he has to remind us and tell us to keep going to keep working out our own salvation. God's not surprised. He's not angry that you're not perfect yet. It's really easy to think like that. He's calling you to grow. He's calling you to grow because he knows that you're not there yet. He's calling you, Christian, today to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. But what does that mean? Well, it means that you are working to make your outward life match your inward convictions. It's a call for a Christian's life to match his beliefs. In other words, it's, it's the same as the call to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ that Paul had given them earlier. One commentator puts it this way, this way and I really like this. He says, believers are to work out or express intangible actions Thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes, the inward reality of the salvation that God has granted in Jesus Christ. You see, so we're working to conform our lives, just like the song said, our thoughts, our attitudes. We're working to conform that, the faith, the belief that God has given us in Christ. And and this is true whether you are a brand new Christian or whether you've been walking with Christ for 40 years. We're all being called to this. This is a call away from passivity and into activity. It's a call out of stagnation into maturation. That's a big word. Paul essentially saying to all of us here, the Christian life is not one of just sitting around and doing nothing. It's a life of work. It's a life of growth. It's a life of vitality. It's a life of pursuing God. It's a life of seeking to know Christ deeper. It's a life of seeking to make him known in the world. It's a life of making grace-driven effort to obey God more and more. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, the correct response, the biblical response, 
the glory of Christ in the gospel is not passivity. It's grace-driven effort. Philosopher Dallas Willard once said, grace is not opposed to, is a, well, wait, grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. So when we are working out our salvation, we're not earning anything before God. We're responding to his grace. We're taking intentional action that will lead to our growth. Think, think about it like a farmer for a second. I'm trying to channel Rudolph here and give some agricultural illustrations that these ones will understand, though. It's a joke we have amongst pastors. Uh, he, you know, he says, don't you all know this? No, I had no idea about mushrooms or whatever. Anyway, but, but I think we'll get this farmer one. So a farmer cultivates the seed that he plants by watering and fertilizing and various other means, right? Takes the weeds away so that a healthy plant will grow. In the same way, think, of, think about the Christian life like that. We are called to cultivate the gospel, the seed of the gospel that has been planted in the soil of our hearts. Pull out the weeds, water it, fertilize it by using the various methods and means of grace that God has given to us. This, this ensures that the truth of Christ will be worked out into our lives from the inside out. It would be a terrible farmer who just plants the seed and walks away expecting something to grow. This is what we're being called to, a life of cultivation, cultivating the truth that God has revealed to us. Now, I, I don't know where each one of you are at this morning, but I, I fear that there are some here whose who's Christian life has, has lapsed into passivity. And I fear this not because I know each one of you, but because I know my own heart. I know that I'm tempted to, to a sinful passivity in my walk with Christ. Sometimes I'm, I'm tempted to assume the grace of God, use the grace of God and salvation as an excuse to be lazy, as an excuse to just not do anything. Well, God's done it. He's sovereign. Amen. I don't have to do anything. That's not the biblical Christian faith. We are being called to work out our salvation. Think about your life. How are you cultivating? How are you facilitating growth in your spiritual life, in your character, in your actions, in your thoughts, in your attitudes? How are you growing? What, what means of grace are you placing yourself in to be able to do this? How are you cultivating the gospel seed that God has planted in you? Now you might say, well, I'm here. I, I come to church. That's something. And that's, that's exactly right. Praise God for that. Gathering together with the church body is an essential, if not the most essential step in our spiritual growth. So in some sense, I realize I'm preaching to the choir. But, but think, think about this with me. And, and this is as much to myself as it is to you. Let's do a little math. That's always good in a sermon, right? Let's do some math. There are 168 hours in a week. If we're here for an hour and a half every Sunday, that's an hour and a half out of 168 hours. If that is the full extent of our Christian life, that's, that's not good. In a year, 
That's 52 hours, or a little more if you add that extra half hour, out of 8,760. That's better than zero. It's a pretty low standard, though. It's not nothing, but it's, but it's not a good plan. It's not a good plan. It's the starting point. But, but think about what, what the Bible reveals to us as, as reality. We are taking place in a cosmic war. We're supposed to put on our spiritual armor. The, the devil is assaulting us. The powers of hell are arrayed against us. I think this is enough. Scriptures say that, that the devil is prowling around, seeking to destroy us, seeking to devour Christians. One hour is not a great strategy against that. It's a good start. It's essential. It's necessary. But if the entirety of your Christian life is just showing up for one hour to spectate, don't be surprised if you're falling into stagnation. Don't be surprised if the things of God are becoming dim to you. I mean, is it, is it not true that some of us, most of us, maybe all of us, give more time and effort to Netflix, video games, than growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? It, it, and my point is, is not to, to guilt you, but, but my aim is, is this. Not look, oh, how stupid we are, but what are we missing out on? I mean, honestly, and to, to ask the question is to answer it, which do you think is better? Which do you think will bear more fruit in your life, in my life, now and in eternity? What do you think will bring more lasting joy, more lasting satisfaction? Another hour on the couch? No. The answer is obvious. The answer is obvious doesn't mean it's a sin to relax every now and then. But knowing the grace of God should cause us, should lead us, should drive us into activity. In fact, the scriptures teach us that, that one of the reasons that God saved us was so that we could get to work and do things that he has prepared for us. He has work that he is doing in this world through us which is not a burden, it's a great privilege. He doesn't need us. He could talk through a donkey. He doesn't need me, but out of his infinite grace, he chooses to use us. Think, think, about, think about how this appears. Some of our most favorite texts about the grace of God, about salvation through faith alone, include what God asks us to do, what he has planned for us to do. Think about a text like, again, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We know that part. We love that part as we should. This is not your own doing. Amen. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, let's not forget, let's not forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. There's the working out your salvation. Grace comes first, then obedience. Or think of a text like Titus 2, 11 through 14, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. For the grace, so grace comes first, for the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people. So here comes grace, salvation, what comes next? What does this grace do in our life? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You can see how Paul's essentially saying the same thing in these texts that he's saying in our text this morning. Grace, salvation, trains us to renounce ungodliness. We work out our salvation and we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us. This is the pattern of the Christian life. This is why God has saved us. This isn't one option, one way a Christian could live. This is, this is it. There's no other option for the Christian life. There, there's no option you can choose, well, I want the salvation, but the kind where I can just like have it and then kind of live how I want. That, that's not an option in the Bible. Someone may tell you it is. There's no Christian life where you just coast and not really care about things. Now, there's a slight correction to that. There is, in the scriptures, an option for that type of faith. The book of James talks about this. You know what James calls that type of faith? Useless and dead. Not able to save anybody. The type of faith that professes Jesus, that makes zero effort to work out their salvation, that that shows zero evidence of the work at God in their lives, James says that's, that's useless, that's dead faith. In fact, James says that's the kind of faith the demons have. They believe God exists. Big deal. That kind of faith can't save. The false faith. True faith manifests itself in work and growth. There's, there's no coasting as a Christian. There's no drifting. We are either working out our salvation pursuing the things of God, or we are drifting away from God. There's there's no neutrality. Listen listen to how biblical scholar D.A. Carson puts it. And this is, I come back to this quote often, because I need to. Listen to what he says. People do not drift towards holiness. In other words, you're not going to drift towards working out your own salvation. He says, apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord, we drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. No coasting, no drifting, no slouching, no sliding, as he says. No. Grace-driven effort. We pursue these things. A grace-driven effort. The only kind of salvation that God has given to us. It's the only kind of salvation the Bible talks about. And it's what he's calling you and me to do this morning. 
Now, now, how are we to go about working out our salvation? Look what Paul says in the text, verse 12, with fear and trembling, with fear and trembling. What in the world does that mean? Does this mean we should pursue growth, always concerned that if we make a mistake that we're just going to lose our salvation? No. Does it mean that we should pursue growth, scared and always wondering if God's just going to strike us down with a lightning bolt? No. Does it mean that we should relate to God as just scared and try to distance ourselves from him as much as possible? No. So what does it mean? It means that we understand the gravity of the situation. Gravity and weight. We, we understand the seriousness of the Christian life. Life or death. Stakes are high. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling means that we, we live in reverence, in awe of God. We live in light of eternity. Take it serious. It's similar, no analogy is perfect, it's, it's similar to, to handling a firearm, right? You, you always treat a gun with a healthy sense of fear and trembling, or you should, doesn't mean that you're, you're scared of the weapon, but it means that you understand what it can do. And so the rules are, you always treat it as if it's loaded. You never point it at anything, even if it's empty, that you're not willing to shoot. You don't treat it like a toy. You treat it with fear and trembling. This is kind of what the scripture is getting at here. It's an attitude of a person who understands the weight the gravity of the situation, the seriousness of the situation. Eternity in the balance, the the weight of the holy word of God, the weakness of our own flesh, the, the seriousness and sinfulness of sin, the power of temptation, the reality and strength of the enemy who opposes us power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. That means that you're taking these things seriously. Not just in word, but in the way you live your life. This is what God's calling us to this morning. This this is what God's calling you to this morning, to take your faith seriously. Now, this doesn't mean solemnly. We don't make jokes. That's That's not what serious means. It means we understand the gravity. What does this look like? It means you're pursuing growth, intentional growth. You're, you're living. You're not just drifting through life. You're making intentional plans. So think about that. Are, are you taking your faith seriously? Now, this is not a black or white issue. There's a whole continuum of ways you can think about this. Has your faith become stagnant? Are, are you intentional about spiritual growth? Are you learning? Are you growing in obedience? Are you putting in effort? Or have you just become a Sunday Christian? Just become content to to rest on the knowledge that you've always had. Just become content to, well, I prayed that prayer once, so I think I'm good. That's not how Christianity works. So wherever you are on the the spectrum, I want to encourage you, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Now, again, what what might this look like in your life? 
think the key word is intentionality. Intentionality. Make a plan. How are you living your life? Set aside time for the means of grace that God has provided for our growth. For prayer. For fellowship. For fighting sin. For Bible reading. For participating in the life of the church. Serving others. Giving of our money. Being generous. Evangelism. Sharing the gospel. These are all the things that God has given us, not only to do, but for our own growth. So make a plan. Schedule them. We schedule everything else in our lives. Don't expect them just to happen. If you don't, I mean, prayer is one of the hardest things for our flesh. Everything about our flesh hates to pray because there's, there's no practical, observable things that happen right away when you pray, 99.9% of the time. And so it's so easy to forget this. If you just say, well, I'll pray sometime tomorrow, you're not going to pray. Make a plan. Make a plan. Schedule your life. Incorporate these activities into your schedule. Do whatever you have to do. Seek to know Christ more deeply. This is God's will for us. Because, again, the gravity of the situation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, now that's, that's a tall order. If this is the only verse we had, that's, that's a heavy burden. If, if Paul is just trying to encourage us with this verse, I don't know, Paul, it doesn't sound very encouraging. Trying to encourage me with fear? I don't get it. Sounds exhausting. So, so how do we accomplish it? And that's Paul's next point in verse 13. The power to work. The power. Look at verse 13. Start in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For, here's the motivation, here's the power. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, so how will we do this? By the power of Almighty God. He is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, for his delight. I love the way the NET translates this verse. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. The implications of this are huge. Everything that we talked about earlier, the intentionality, the work, the spiritual growth, all of this is accomplished not by our power, but by God's power at work in us. He is at work in you. He is at work among us. That means that as you seek to be faithful to this command, God is not watching you from a distance up in heaven saying, well, this time I really hope you don't screw it up. God's not watching you thinking, why can't you just get it together already? How many times do you have to be told the same thing? God isn't sitting up in heaven saying, don't look at me. I already told you what to do. Just do it. I already saved you. What more do you want? The rest is up to you. Not true. Those are all lies straight from the pit of hell. But they are lies that we are tempted to believe. 
So we see breath of life in a verse like this. God is dwelling in us by the power of his Holy Spirit, transforming our hearts. He is at work in us, in you, to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a massive encouragement. Without verse 13, the command of verse 12 would be overwhelming. It would be impossible. It would be like me asking my four-year-old daughter to go make me breakfast. She doesn't know how. She can't do it. It would provoke despair. But with verse 13, the command to work in verse 12 becomes a delight. Because God is working in us to accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. To will and to work. This is both the internal and the external aspects of our lives. God is transforming our work. He's he's making it effective in the world. God's working in you. He's working in me. And so we work, not because God's told us to. We work because God is at work in us. Paul describes this this kind of tension so well in Colossians 1.28. Listen to what he says. He's talking about his apostolic mission, what he does. He says, him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's what Paul's mission is. What's his motivation? What's his power? For this I toil, struggling. So Paul is laboring. He's struggling. And then he says this, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see that? that that's exactly it. Paul says, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. In, ever, in other words, my mission is to help other people work out their own salvation and fear and trembling. How do I do it? I struggle. I toil. I labor with all of his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Paul can say at the same time, I'm working as hard as I can work. It's God who's at work in me. See, understanding that God was at work in Paul didn't lead him to passivity. Say, well, if God's at work, then it's not much for me to do. It was exactly the opposite. Because God was at work in Paul, he could labor and toil knowing that his work would not be in vain. And this fact should have the same effect on us. This is our motivation to work out our salvation. This is the motivation that fuels our spiritual pursuits. You're struggling to read your Bible. Keep working at it. God is at work in you. You're struggling to learn to pray. Keep working at it. God's at work in you. Struggling to fight sin. Work. God is working in you. You're struggling to to become more bold in evangelism. Keep working. God is at work in you. We have to understand this. Because if we slide into thinking that God expects us to be here and we're not, and he's disappointed in us, that will just sap all your motivation. Hear this again. God is at work in you, both to will and to work. Just that. For his good pleasure. His delight. It's, it's his delight, it's his pleasure to be at work in you. It's his pleasure. Just, just stop and think about that for a second. It's God's pleasure to be at work in your life. It's God's pleasure. 
Let me say that again because I need to hear it again. It's God's pleasure to be at work in you. He is not begrudging about the work that he has to do in your life. He's not, again, annoyed with you. Okay, I guess I'll help you grow. I wish I didn't have to. No, no. It's his pleasure. He saved you. And when he saved you, he knew greater than even you know the depth of your own wickedness and sin. And in that, in that wickedness, Christ died for you. Because that's true, that didn't stop when God saved you. It's his pleasure to be at work in you. It was his pleasure to save you. He knows every single one of your weaknesses. More than you do. He knows your struggles. He knows your sins. And yet, in spite of all of this, out of the overflow of his grace and love for you, Christ Jesus, he is joyfully working in you and willing to work for his own good pleasure. What an amazing truth this is. And the best part about this, one of the aspects of this, I suppose, this frees us up to come before God in prayer with our struggles. This frees us up, this liberates us to be honest with God about our sins, about the times that we fail, because we're not trying to earn anything before him. He already knows. He's the one that's at work in our lives. It frees us up to be able to, to pray and to work even when we lack the desire, even when we just committed a sin 30 seconds ago. Maybe, that, maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe you're hearing this, this message and you're thinking, you know, I know there are some, some changes I need to make. I know there are areas of my life where I'm not obeying God, but I don't just, I, I, I'm just even struggling having the desire. I don't have the willpower. I know I should want to pray. I know I should pray. I know I should want to pray, but I don't even know if I'm there yet. This verse frees you to come before God and pray to Him, change my heart. Give me the desire to obey you more. Give me the desire to pray more. Give me the desire to work out my own salvation. Help me. Help me, Father, to see my sin for what it is. Give me the desire to, to flee from my sin. Without your help, I can never do it. See, too often we approach prayer as if, you know, we've got, to, we've got to pry something out of God's hands. It's not true. He's at work in our hearts. So pray that. Plead with him in prayer. Plead with him to be faithful to the promises that you have found and seen in his word. And he will be. No matter where you are, he's not given up on you. Paul said earlier in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. Keep going. Keep going. God loves when we pray his word back to him. That's why he's given it to us. So rely on it, Christian. Rely on his power as we get to work. Pattern is simple. Pray. Get to work. This is what the Christian life is. This is what it, it means to be a Christian, to 
to live by grace-driven effort. The only kind of salvation there is, salvation that is purchased by Christ, given to us by grace, and then worked out by God in us through fear and trembling. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. God has become incarnate in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. He purchased us with his own blood, again, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were his enemies hostile towards him. He raised Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we confess in the Apostles or in the Nicene Creed, Christ ascended into heaven to be our high priest. And now, as Christ, our mediator, prays for us, the Holy Spirit is at work in us, bringing us more and more into holiness, bringing us more into alignment with God's will, bringing us more and more to obedience every day. So keep going. God, God is calling you to something this morning. I don't know where you are. For some of you, the call is, is to put your faith in Christ. Repent from your sins. You can't work out your salvation if you don't even have that. So if you've never put your faith in Christ, this, this, is, this is what you need to do. This is what God is calling you to this morning. Turn from your sins. Trust in Christ. Cast yourself on his mercy. And he will forgive your sins. He will begin to work in you for his own glory. Some of you need to get to work. Perhaps you're, you're a believer, but, but you've become stagnant. You've, you've been lazy. You've, you've lost your sense of fear and trembling. You've taken the grace of God for granted. You've forgotten the gravity of spiritual things. Lapsed into thinking that you don't, you don't need really to make any effort in your spiritual life. That's for those like super Christians. You're, you're sinfully and passively waiting on God to do something. Lost your desire to grow. Well, the response is, is simple. Acknowledge your sin to God. Confess it to him. Repent. Ask God to renew your desires. And begin today to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. God's grace to you to give you this message this morning. He's speaking to you. His pleasure, his pleasure. Or maybe you're, you're trying to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but you're discouraged. You keep failing. The message this morning is keep going, keep moving. Trust that God is at work in you even when you can't see it, or feel it. Continue to drink deeply of his word. Grab other believers to pray with you. And don't for a second just think because he's not working quickly that he's not at work in your life. Keep going. Keep moving. Wherever you're at today, the message of this text is clear. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with a joyful seriousness, knowing that God is at work in us. Let's be intentional about our lives. Be intentional about our walk with God. Let the grace of God fuel us as we work out our salvation. And as Paul had said earlier in Philippians, we're not doing this by ourselves. We're doing this side by side. We're striving together as one 
in this direction, step by step, stumble by stumble. May God make this a reality among us all. May God continue to bless our efforts. May God glorify himself in and through us as he works for his good pleasure, for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good and gracious to us. We could never put into words how thankful we are for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So Father, now, would you fuel, continue to fuel our salvation? Lord, would you bless our meager efforts? Would you will and work in us according to what you have promised in your word? Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness. Father, remind us this morning, we are surrounded, surrounded and assaulted daily by trivialities, by so many things trying to distract us, from the reality, the realities that your scripture reveals. Father, help us to do this with fear and trembling. Help us to know your grace more deeply. Lord, ultimately, help us to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. We pray this in his name, relying on your power, Father.